Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm Ben Shank. Hi, everyone. I'm Russell Wilcox. Today on the show, we have Bruce Tremper. Bruce has been director of the Forest Service Utah Avalanche Center since 1986. His previous work includes avalanche control and forecasting at various ski areas in Alaska. Bruce also holds a master's degree in geology where he studied avalanches. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So for everyone listening, Bruce, at least in my opinion, is kind of the cool uncle of the backcountry. He analyzes all the conditions and then tells the kids when they can go out and play. Does that sound about right? (laughs) I've never heard it put that way, but I'll take it. (laughs) And you're saving lives all at the same time. How cool is that? Yeah, you know, it's it's been a wonderful life and uh, quite a wild ride. And uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed enjoyed my career. So, how did all this get started? I know when you were a kid, you were a big ski racer. Your dad was pretty pretty big influence on your life and avalanches in general, but what was it like as a kid? Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in uh, western Montana, and uh, my, my father taught me about avalanches when I was 10 years old, when he took a, an avalanche class from Dr. John Montaigne in Bozeman, uh, one of the first classes he taught. And I later ended up studying under him for my master's degree in geology, and, and he, he was still teaching, you know, a quarter-long avalanche course at the university at that time, so... Um, my father was one of his first students and I was one of his, uh, last students before he retired. So, so that's pretty cool. You know, what goes around comes around. So I'm a little unfamiliar on the brand Montaigne. Is that the same affiliated person who started that John Montaigne? Yeah. John Mon, Dr. John Montaigne. He, uh, he was a professor at uh, Montana State University in Bozeman. Yeah. He's been there for a long, long time. So Bruce, I want to talk to you about avalanches. <laughs> Uh, so I'm watching this YouTube video that you produced about snow compositions and densities and different sorts of layers. And I literally have no, I know nothing about this, but you happen to be the analogy king. And within one (laughs) minute, you use the terms brick on top of a pile of potato chips, plywood on your mattress and monsters lurking in the basement. And for some reason now I understand everything about avalanches. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. (laughs) So please, please use those when we talk today. I think that's a really good way to break it down um, and help people understand. When we're kind of getting into avalanches and learning about them, Ben and I were, we were having an argument about half hour ago on, you know, what really, when it comes down to it, snow conditions wise is going to cause an avalanche for me. Uh, I had read some of your materials, and it was uh, more of a crust layer, and it can vary, I know, but with some snow accumulation on top, and then it kind of slides down in big slabs. Uh, There are other kinds, but then Ben has this uh, potato chip type analogy. Do you mind just elaborating a little bit more on something to be really worried about snow conditions-wise? Yeah. With avalanches, everybody 
kind of starts out thinking, oh, yeah, it's just a bunch of loose snow sliding on a hard, icy crust or something like that. And, yeah, avalanches do occur that way. But the kind of avalanche that causes almost all avalanche fatalities are on what we call persistent weak layers. And they're called that because they continue to produce avalanches for many days after they're loaded up with weight. And by persistent weak layers, I mean uh, things like faceted snow and faceted snow near the ground is called depth hoar or sugar snow as it's called sometimes. And then ordinary frost, you know, when you've got to scrape your windshield in the morning, this frost is growing on the snow surface, and we call that surface horror. And it's spelled H-O-A-R, not, not the kind you're thinking of. <laughs> but these are persistent weak layers, and once they're buried, they're, they're very, very dangerous. Uh, because, you know, the storm's done, the sun comes out, people are out there raging, and they, they're not expecting this, the whole mountainside to move, that, you know, after the storm's over, we're conditioned to think, well, things are safe now. And that's why they're so dangerous. So these weak layers don't fall from the sky. They form within the snowpack itself or on the snow surface. And the ones that form inside the snowpack are caused by, big term alert here, uh, temperature gradient metamorphism. So there's a term you can impress your friends <laughs> with. And so that that's just a fancy way of saying a big difference in temperature across a certain distance. And so that especially happens in the early season when the snowpack is thin. And thin snow means weak snow because you have these high temperature gradients and it just rots all the snow away. It metamorphoses into these very weak sugary crystals and they just can't support much weight. So they're just like, imagine that, a pile of potato chips. Mm-hmm. And then you put a brick on top of it, uh, you know, like a big slab of snow and it just can't support the weight. That's what causes most of the avalanches that uh, that cause avalanche accidents. Okay, that clears things up. When we were kind of also talking about this, we were thinking about, you know, there's so much science behind this. There's so much data. You guys have weather. You have all these different areas of information that you need to bring together to really go out and tell someone it's okay to go here. There's always going to be risks, but what does it take to dig into all this data and give a realistic showing of the avalanche conditions for the day. I'm going to break down what Russell just said into layman's terms. So I'm watching the <laughs> I'm watching the snow report in the morning. What would I hear that makes me think, okay, I'm staying away from that? Well, you know, we'd use these danger ratings, you know, uh level 1 through level 5. Um, so it's, it's, uh, green, yellow, orange, red, and black, or in words, low, moderate, considerable, extreme, high, or, or high extreme, excuse me. Um, so those danger ratings are kind of the first cut. Those are international standard ratings that have uh, been standardized, uh, oh, about 20 years ago. So we're kind of bound to use them including their names, like the name Considerable. I hate the name Considerable, but it's, it was established a long time ago. That's the first cut. So if it's lower moderate, then it's kind of like normal caution. You know, that, those are the conditions where most people can get out and be relatively safe. You know, with, with you know, a normal level one avalanche class, you should be able to operate fairly well. Um, at low and moderate. And once you get to that middle danger rating, considerable, which is a horrible word, I agree, but it it's actually a lot more dangerous than it appears because the definition of it is dangerous conditions. You know, the, you, that 
if you read the fine print, it, it, it kind of means experts only. You know, you need to really know what you're doing if you're going to go out in a considerable danger terrain. And so that's like extra caution, experts only. And once you get too high and extreme, that just means forbidden, verboten, don't go, uh, don't, don't mess with that stuff. So that's kind of the cutoff. It's really kind of a green light, yellow light, red light. Uh, situation that all those danger ratings are really kind of a three-step process in practical terms the way we would manage the terrain as we're traveling how would you go about coming up with those ratings i'm sure over the years you've come up with some system whether that's going out and actually digging pits out in the snow to look at the layers but you have so many areas you can't do that on a consistent basis yeah, we gather lots of information from a lot of different places. You know, you should never base your whole avalanche forecast or stability rating when you're traveling by yourself on on one piece of information, you know. That's like getting married on the first date. You need to get lots of information from a lot of different places. You know, you need to meet the in-laws. You need to paddle a canoe together for a couple <laughs> of weeks. You, you need to, you know, really get some information from a lot of different places before you commit your life to something. So don't get married on the first date. And we do the same thing with avalanche advisories. So we are using our own information when we're going out in the backcountry. We're digging snow profiles. We're looking at strong layers, weak layers, how, how much extra weight is it going to take to collapse that weak layer and produce an avalanche? So we're digging lots of different aspects and elevations. Our field work is a lot less glamorous than what most people think. <laughs> it's actually a lot of work. We're using our information. Then we're, of course, talk to all the ski areas, the helicopter skiing companies, the Utah Department of Transportation. They all have their own teams of avalanche forecasters that do avalanche control with explosives, which is really good information with explosive avalanche control. And then we have a bunch of volunteer observers, people that are out there on their own that just send us information, photos, videos, tell us where the avalanches are occurring. So everybody's out there, and we really depend on that. That's by far the most important information we get is everybody that's going out to give feedback to let us know what's going on. Because, say, for the Wasatch Range, just here by Salt Lake City, there's only four of us that are doing this, and we can't be everywhere at once. You know, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. It might seem kind of impressive, but it, when you pull back the curtain, you just there's just one person sitting there in the office, you know, twiddling the, the levers and trying to make all this happen. So we really depend on all this information coming from other places. And then our office is at the National Weather Service. So we have the best weather forecasters in the world for mountain weather forecasting. And right there, and we're sitting at their computers and we're just part of the team. So, yeah, we gather lots of information, put it all together, try to put it in an understandable package, and put it out every morning by 7 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, that means our alarm clock goes off at 3 o'clock in the morning for the person that's going into the office. That sounds lovely. Um, so I want to rewind back to when you were talking about the ratings, considerable and high you obviously hate those terms, and when I hear something's considerable danger, I think, well, I can handle that, when really this is very dangerous. So is there a way to change the ratings, or is the problem education? Well, you know, according to the international agreement, we can use the colors or the numbers or the words. Now, when you go to Europe, it's almost always numbers. You know, it's level three, level two. That's the way... 
people talk because there's so many different languages there. So one thing we're considering doing next year is just not using the words and just using colors hmm. or perhaps numbers. So I kind of want to do some surveys this spring and just test people to see what they understand and what they prefer. The surveys I've done in the past, just kind of walking around a ski area cafeteria and on my index cards, I would write the names of all the five levels on five cards and put them in front of people and say, hey, can you sort these into the right mm-hmm. order? And one out of four people can't sort those into the right order. Oh, so wow. there's a big problem. I think we're going to drop the names next year, at least if I have my way. Interesting. Obviously, the snow composition is a huge driver for the avalanches, but I've heard a ton about the type of terrain. So you talk a lot about the steepness and the trees that are around. Can you talk about that, like what makes extreme terrain and high-risk versus low-risk terrain? Yeah, terrain is the most important thing to learn if you're going to learn anything about avalanches because – Terrain is kind of like the steering wheel on your car. That's, the, that's your only control of where you're going to be. You know, you don't have any control over the snowpack or the weather, but you have infinite control over the terrain that you choose. So that's how it's done. When the snowpack is really dangerous, you have to steer your steering wheel towards low-danger terrain. It's pretty simple. So that means staying on slopes that are less than 30 degrees because there's very few avalanches that occur on slopes less than 30 degrees and they ramp up really rapidly once you get above 30 degrees and then you have to really watch the consequences so if you do trigger an avalanche what's going to happen is it going to take you through a bunch of trees going 80 miles an hour that's like a you know a giant bread slicer stuck in high gear is it going to take you over cliffs or into a narrow gully, a terrain trap where even small avalanches will fill up very deeply, or into crevasses, something like that. You have to really watch what's going to happen if you get caught in an avalanche. So that's the danger of the terrain is the probability and the consequences together. You know, the probability is determined by how steep the slope is. You know, right around 39 degrees is the maximum probability, and it actually drops off steeper than that. Mm. Uh, So it, it really ramps up between 30 and 39 degrees, and then Steeper than that, it actually gets safer because the snow sloughs all the time and doesn't get a chance to build up into slabs. Hmm. The steepness of a black diamond slope at a ski area is prime avalanche terrain. So in dangerous conditions, you need to go to the blue runs, you know, the backcountry ones that are you know, 30 degrees or blue-colored runs at a ski area. Great. I was reading some more information in your book about that, and you were talking about an inclinometer. It was just very interesting to hear that come up, and it makes complete sense to have one of those. Although every time I feel like I'm talking to anyone who's had any experiences with avalanches, they're always talking about their safety gear, what you need after the avalanche happens. And in your book, you go into more detail about, you know, really, this is the best tool you can have. So I'm guessing the inclinometer is just something that tells you the incline of what you're skiing, similar to what I do when I stick one pole in the ground going uh, vertical and then one pole in the ground going horizontal, and I can see if something's a 45-degree grade. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I agree. People focus on the wrong things with backcountry. They focus on rescue when they really should be focusing on avoiding avalanches because, you know, rescue doesn't work very well in a lot of cases. You might be able to save somebody's life if they're completely buried about half the time. I mean, those aren't very good odds half the time. So you need to first figure out how to avoid avalanches. And the best way to do that is with your steering wheel. In other words, the terrain that you choose. And you need to know how steep that terrain is. It's really important to 
to use an inclinometer, go out and just measure a bunch of slopes so you get a feel for how steep 30 degrees is and how steep, you know, 39 degrees is right at the bullseye. So that's essential. And everyone, most everyone has an inclinometer already. It's right on your smartphone. They've got lots of different applications, all of them free, that you can just um, measure the slope. You know, you just use your camera and sight down the slope or up the slope and or even sideways to the slope, and you can tell how steep something is. And you do have to calibrate your phone, by the way, too, so you have to kind of stick it on a flat countertop and zero it out for them to work. And that's just one caution. Yeah, that's that's what I use. I don't use my fancy inclinometer anymore. I just use my smartphone. Yeah, and based off of kind of what Ben was saying, where just using your pole and, and taking an estimate, I've heard that people aren't quite as calibrated as they think that they are. And so right. really having a technical device makes sense in the backcountry. Are you saying my method doesn't work? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you're saying you don't work. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I, I try to stick to resort skiing, Bruce. <laughs> no, it's, it's good to measure it. And, you know, you can have ski pole methods, but they, they just don't work very well. And then, you know, laying your smartphone on your ski pole, a lot of people do that, but that doesn't work very well either because you're just measuring a small little tiny piece of the slope. And then, you know, is your ski pole bent or not? And, you know, most ski poles are thicker at one end than the other and so on. So it's better just to just to sight down the slope with your iPhone, you know. It has the in-camera thing that you can sight down the slope with the X on it or sight up the slope. So that's the best way to do it. And just measure a bunch of them until you calibrate your avalanche eyeballs. And then once you do that, you know, you don't need to get out your phone all the time. So we talked about how you can prevent avalanches and not get into that situation. Let's talk about when the avalanche starts. So first of all, out of snowboards, skis, and snowmobiles, what causes the most avalanches? Well, I don't know what causes the most avalanches, but um, snowmobiles are more efficient at triggering avalanches because you know there's more weight involved and snowmobiles dig in to be closer to that weak layer to collapse it than a skier or a snowboarder would so the research shows that snowmobilers trigger well it's more likely one and a half to five times than it is for a skier just because of the depth of penetration Russell and I are skiers. Actually, Russell telemarks for some reason. Let's say we're skiing in a wide open bowl, not too many trees. It's like 37 degree grade, really primed for an avalanche. And I'm skiing down and I look behind me. There's just this big avalanche rumbling toward me. What are my options? Well, usually people don't get caught by avalanches that are just suddenly rumbling towards them. Okay. In, in almost all cases, we trigger the avalanches. We've met the enemy and he is us, as Pogo said so many years ago. Yeah, 93% of the cases is triggered by the victim or somebody in the victim's party. So you're crossing the slope and suddenly it collapses and the whole slope just shatters like a pane of glass and it feels like somebody pulls the rug out from underneath you and then you're off for the for the ride of your life you know it's going to tumble you and strain you through trees and over cliffs and bury you in the snow and when you get buried in the snow you can't just pop up out of this stuff because it grinds it up on the way down and packs it in really tight like like being buried in sand on the beach and how we die in avalanches is is we breathe our own carbon dioxide. So you breathe out, it goes into the snow, you breathe in, and you're rebreathing your own carbon dioxide. So there's plenty of air in the snow to breathe. That's not the problem. But that's why avalanches are so dangerous because you've only got about 10 or 15 minutes to live under the snow because of carbon dioxide poisoning from our own breath. 
In other words, to get back to your question, it's very rare to be caught and killed by an avalanche that you did not trigger. Most of the time, we're triggering it. But yeah, there are cases, 7% of the cases, where somebody triggers it from above or in really rare instances, there just happens to be a natural avalanche above you and you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's good that we're triggering avalanches because it means we have a choice. It's not like getting struck by lightning. You know, we can choose our terrain, we can choose our snowpack, and we have a choice. Interesting. So the avalanche is sliding underneath you and are you trying to stay on top of the snow? Well, everybody's always says, okay, you know, when you teach an avalanche class, their first question is, what do I do if I get caught in an avalanche, you know? I just hate to see the looks on people's faces. I say, yeah, that's like asking, you know, what do I do if I get in a car wreck? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything happens so fast. You really don't have a whole lot of choice. And yeah, if you're a very good athlete or, you know, very good on your snowmobile, you can accelerate and get off that slab, especially if you've already got your speed built up. A lot of time you've seen it in the movies, you know, with these extreme athletes are cutting the avalanche their momentum takes them off the avalanche mere mortals like us we're not able to do that you know you just kind of flop down like a like a cow you know and and you go oh my god the whole mountainside's moving and then you've got to try to get back on your feet and get the heck off that thing it's it's probably too late because you know things are tumbling and shattering like glasses these blocks going all over the place you can't ski and snowboard on that stuff It just takes you down really fast. Everything happens really, really quickly. To put that in perspective, in your book, you do an amazing job of talking about the speed. And you say in the first two seconds, it goes 10 miles an hour. After five seconds, it's up to 30. And then 15 seconds, it's almost 80 miles per hour. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, and I might be a little conservative on those numbers. That's just (laughs) my guess. But, you know, some of them just are off, off to the races right away. So, yeah, they are very dangerous, you know, and then you're going through trees and hitting rocks and I mean that's like being on a motorcycle zooming down the freeway and then you'd steer your motorcycle into the nearest telephone pole and that's what it's going to feel like. That's that's why one out of four people are killed by the trauma of hitting trees and rocks on the way down before they even get a chance to suffocate. Another thing that you mention is why are these people getting into avalanches? And talking about the mental shortcuts in your brain that you use to make decisions. For example, being in a group, you're influenced by other people, having the competition to go down the steepest slope. Maybe just elaborate a little bit on some of the psychology behind getting yourself in that situation. In most accidents, there is some sort of human factor going on, as people have called it. In other words, sometimes we realize it's dangerous, but we go anyway. I mean, we all do that, you know, including me. You know, how many of us uh, follow a doctor's orders or follow the advice of our financial planner all the time? So everybody does this. Okay, so let's just get over that. And and there's a lot of these mental shortcuts that cause us to do things that we really shouldn't do. You know, if we're in a larger group of people, we tend to make riskier decisions. That's called risky shift in the business community. So larger communities of people make riskier decisions. And if you're in familiar terrain, you just feel more comfortable and you tend to make riskier decisions. And if all your friends are doing it, you'd want to do it too, basic peer pressure. And then if there's competition going on, you're trying to impress somebody or, you know, get in the latest video or get on the cover of Powder Magazine, you know, you're going to take more risks. So all 
all those things, and there's a million other kind of things going on too. There's confirmation bias. You know, if you believe something's true, then you're going to look for evidence to support it and kind of discount all the evidence evidence that doesn't support it. So, you know, we're human beings. We're very imperfect. Moses was right. You know, human beings are a damned mess, and we need rules. <laughs> and so that's why you really need to. Make the rules before you go out there and follow the rules, a step-by-step procedure. So the system is the solution. And that's how avalanche professionals work is you operate by this really tight system of checks and balances and decision-making methods. And then once you say, okay, these slopes are off limits, you know, you've made your run list and, okay, I'm going to go to these slopes and not to those slopes, then you've got to stick with it. And, you know, not change your mind, you know, when you're swayed by all these other conditions when you're out there. The system aspect, taking a step back and looking at it's amazing. Another thing that I've read that you talk about is your commandments. And I, I just had one that kind of stuck out. I really thought was interesting. The thou shall never go first. <laughs> and I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but I, actually I practice that a lot. And I would much rather be skiing or snowmobiling on a slope with lots of tracks than ones without them. Because volunteer stability testers have been out there before you and it doesn't mean it's a guaranteed if you're dealing with deep slab avalanche it doesn't mean very much but for most avalanches the first few people are probably going to trigger the avalanche so i don't mind tracks it's just a lot safer yeah the statistic you use is 90 percent of avalanches are triggered from that first person to go down which is just astounding yeah that depends on the kind of avalanche you're dealing with i think for i think that statistic comes from europe where they don't have as many deep slab avalanches but around here we have some of them that just break on the ground uh, you know five ten feet deep and and some of those slopes are completely filled full of tracks when you break them but those are more rare avalanches those are the bad boys of the backcountry. Russell and I will just go at the same time and then we won't have to decide. No, I'm sure that that's a terrible strategy, correct? Correct. <laughs> you always need to leave somebody in a spot that can do the rescue. I mean, when you're on pros, they're always one at a time. Only one person exposes themselves. The other person is in an island of safety, you know, hugging a tree uh, so that they're not caught because somebody has to dig you out. Even if you have an avalanche airbag, probably buried face down and somebody needs to help you get out of the snow. We all depend on our friends to survive in avalanches. Russell and I both went to the SIA show in Denver and I was astounded at all these different airbag companies. And for the listeners, basically what this airbag is, it's a backpack that you're carrying when you ski and you can pull a cord or there's a fan that will rapidly inflate this bag. And it's very similar to this Brazilian nut effect where the largest nuts rise to the top. So if you're rumbling around in this avalanche and you have a much bigger surface area, then you're going to rise to the top. Yeah, larger objects rise to the top. Here's your homework assignment. Go to your bag of tortilla chips or potato chips you have at home and, you know, shake it up and down. And and you can see that the large chips come to the surface. I mean, everybody knows that, right? And, you know, all the crumbs end up on the bottom. So, yeah, if you're a larger object, you rise to the top of a granular flow thing like an avalanche. So that's why they work. And the avalanche airbags are very important technology that's come along in the last 10 or 15 years. And many people's lives have been saved by them. But one word of caution, and I've seen this used in advertisements where they say they're 97% effective in real world uh, situations. That's not entirely true. What they don't tell you is that 90% of the time you're going to live in an avalanche anyway. So they're kind of raising it from 90% to 97%. A better way to think about it is out of 100 people who get caught in an avalanche, what number of those whose 
lives would be saved if they had been wearing an avalanche airbag. And you know, if you look at the realistic situations, ones who are seriously involved in avalanches, the talking point I usually use is avalanche airbags would save the lives of about half the people who would otherwise have died in an avalanche. Wow. That's a more realistic number. But you know, for half the people, avalanche airbags are not going to work because one out of four people are going to get killed from trauma anyway. So avalanche airbags make no difference there. Mm-hmm. And then in quite a few other cases, it might just be a very, very large avalanche that you wouldn't survive anyway. Or you might get buried in a terrain trap, go over cliffs and so on. Or it might be a secondary avalanche release that will bury you after you go down. Or it might be just a very, very small avalanche because the avalanche has to travel a little ways for this avalanche airbag to work. So if it's just a short little avalanche, they they won't work in a short distance. So they don't work all the time. That's the take-home point. So you have your avalanche airbags, and then you also have these little breather tubes, which you can breathe the air in. Usually they're located on your chest, the intake, and then it exhales through the backpack. Yeah, those are avalongs made by Black Diamond. In Salt Lake City. I've got one built into my pack. And so when you breathe in, the air comes in the intake thing. And when you breathe out, it's just a little simple flapper valve. And so the, the tube comes out on the backside of your pack or something. So it separates your carbon dioxide from the air that you're breathing in. And that's what kills your own carbon dioxide. So you can live maybe for an hour onto the snow if you're breathing through an avalong, whereas without it, you have 10 or 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Another thing that kind of came up is you had this this section about misconceptions, and people were thinking once they get buried, they may have a little bit of wiggle room, and the best way to tell your orientation is to actually spit in the snow to see which direction gravity is to then start digging up. You want to just kind of talk about why anyone would ever think that they have any mobility under the snow? Yeah, because you can't move under the snow. Um, you can hardly move your little finger. It just packs in there really tight and just freezes like concrete. You can't dig yourself out, so it doesn't matter which way is up. If you're right near the surface or if you have a hand free or something like that, then then people have been able to dig themselves out that way. But you have to be in really you know, low-density avalanche debris and, and be the, near the surface. But a lot of people are you know, packed in there. And you can't get yourself out. Your friends have to locate you and get you out. That sounds absolutely miserable. We've talked a lot about the equipment. Is there a next best thing in avalanche safety? Well, I don't know. It seems like new technology comes on about every 10 years. So that'd be cool if there was something else that came along. I'm personally rooting for a backpack that levitates you up off the snow yes, uh, with a push of a button and, and you kind of just float above the avalanche. and Jetpack. <laughs> with impunity. Yeah, a jetpack <laughs> or got your own personal drone or something. But who knows what's going to come along. The one thing we've got right now is we've got terrain. We've got our choice of terrain. And that's why most people get killed in avalanches is that they're just not matching the snowpack of the day with the proper terrain. I mean, it's really, really simple. When the snowpack is dangerous, you have to choose safe terrain. And a lot of people are just not doing that. They're going out there at a level three or orange or considerable danger day. And they got, they're out there with the GoPros and their video crews and they're hucking off cliffs and trying to get famous. And that's not the time to do that. You need to notch it back and just get the nice powder shots on 30-degree slopes. You can have plenty of fun on 30-degree slopes. Just give it a, a few days to settle and stabilize. Thanks for all the great tips. Uh, we're 
obviously, if anyone is listening to this and they're about to go backcountry skiing, there's many more things you should do before going out. For example, the Utah Avalanche Center hosts about 15,000 people a year with some of their programs and presentations. Since the conception, it's reached about 150,000 people. And so what would you recommend for someone not living in Utah to get this kind of detailed information on how to stay safe? Well, there's a lot of resources out there. There's uh, lots of videos that have been posted online. I can't even keep track of all of them. Um, good education ones. A lot of the manufacturers come are coming out with uh, really cool videos these days. And uh, we have a lot of resources on our website. Hopefully we can have time to update them this summer and kind of build a detailed list of what's out there with links to them. Yeah, there's a lot of resources available. You can read books, uh, watch videos, and then a lot of places do offer free classes. Any place where there is a more major avalanche center, they'll offer free one-hour classes, and we certainly do here in Utah. And then the private sector offers all kinds of classes that are like an evening lecture and then a you know Saturday field day or something like that. So, yeah, just get basic avalanche education. Every, anybody who goes in the backcountry needs to have basic avalanche education maybe a level one course, just to know the obvious things that could save our lives. The Utah Avalanche Center, their website, just like Bruce was saying, has a ton of amazing links and resources. They also are about two-thirds funded by donations and fundraising and events. So if they provide you any value, definitely check out their website. Another thing we just wanted to highlight is uh, Bruce has two books on Amazon, Avalanche Essentials, which is more of a, a pocket guide to be safe in the outdoors. But there's a more detailed book that he has called Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain. So both great resources. Bruce is pretty much as good as it gets uh, in avalanche safety and avalanche knowledge. So uh, is there another way that people can reach out to you if they have any other questions? On our website at utahavalanchecenter.org. So I guess my big takeaway from talking to you is the best way to survive an avalanche is probably just to not get into one in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Easier said than done in, in a lot of cases, I realize. Yeah, a little bit of preparation goes a long way. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Really appreciate it. We've both really enjoyed this. Oh, yeah, I've enjoyed it too. Thank you very much. Hey, listeners, if you're still on, probably enjoyed another one of our Mountain Meister podcasts, and uh, we still need some help. There's a very easy and specific way that you can help us. Yes, there is, Russell. Good point. We're going to tell you how and why you should help us. The main reason is that a huge source of growth for podcasts is the iTunes New and Noteworthy section. This is a place where upcoming podcasts within their first eight weeks of launch can be placed based on the number of five-star reviews and downloads that podcast receives. Yeah, and we've heard that it can help grow your podcast almost 300% just in those eight weeks, and that's, that's huge. I mean... Right now, we probably have uh, at least 30,000 listeners. Two. Two, two listeners. Yeah. Okay, two <laughs> listeners, yeah. So we're looking for a few more, and you know we want to keep spreading the love. So there are really two main drivers and two ways that you can help us, and that's five-star reviews and subscribing to our podcast. Yeah, so if you would be so kind, go to iTunes, press subscribe, so you receive our podcast every weekday. And go in and leave us a review, which is hopefully five stars. Thanks, guys. 